Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be invited, always good to be invited back, but you've got a new preacher since I was here last, and he's so much better looking and uh, more intelligent and younger than the old guy. I can't even remember the name of the old guy. <laughs> Steve and I have been texting, and he really is rejoicing, and I do too, over the growth that you've experienced and the smooth transition. You need to pray for Steve, though. You know, the first year when you retire, you kind of lose your identity. And I, I ran into a woman about a month after I retired, and she looked at me and said, I remember you when you used to be somebody. And uh, <clears throat> those kind of comments don't help a whole lot. But uh, Steve does rejoice with what's going on here. I do too, and so glad to meet John. We anticipate terrific things in the future. I want to talk with you today about great joy, particularly great joy regardless of circumstances. In Luke 2, when the angel appeared to the shepherds that first Christmas, the angel said, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be to all the people unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The circumstances surrounding that first Christmas weren't exactly ideal. The Roman soldiers brutalized the Jews. Mary and Joseph lived under the poverty level. Jesus was born in an unsanitary shed. The shepherds worked the night shift. And yet the angel said to them, I bring you good news of great joy. About 33 years after that, Jesus Christ, a man who is acquainted with sorrows and grief, hours before he's going to be crucified and he knew exactly what was going to happen, he gathered his disciples together and he said, now I say these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. About 30 years after that, the Apostle Paul, writing at a time of severe persecution, wrote, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So obviously, one of the dominant virtues in the Christian life should be a spirit of joy about us. Because regardless of what happens in Washington, D.C., or North Korea, or the Mexican border, we have a hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for us, and that is a constant source of joy. But frankly, as I travel the country and meet a lot of Christian people, I meet a lot of Christians who don't appear to be very joyful, particularly Christians who are older. Our lives are characterized by complaining about what's wrong with us physically, pining for the past when we were more important, criticizing the younger generation or the older generation for not showing us more respect, whining about what's wrong with the government or the school or the church. And often, as we get older in the Christian life, it appears we get more cantankerous and more sour. One teenage boy complained, my grandpa has OCD. You mean he has obsessive compulsive disorder? No, he said he's old, cranky, and dangerous. <laughs> Remember that movie, Grumpy Old Men, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon? If we're not careful, as we age in the Christian life, we begin to focus on all that's wrong, and we become grumpy old Christians. And that should not be. The Bible does not say, rejoice in the Lord until you get to be 55 years of age, and then you get a license to be grumpy and grouchy. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I say it again, rejoice. A little over a year ago, I met a man 
in Grayson, Kentucky, who was 104 years old. He walked into the room where I was preaching, walked in with a cane. Afterward, I couldn't wait to meet him. He had a twinkle in his eye, and he told me a joke, and we laughed. And I thought, that's probably one of the reasons he's lived to be so long. He has a good sense of humor. But I turned around. There must have been six people standing in line to meet him. Older Christians who are joyful are a positive testimony for Jesus Christ. But people who are old, cranky, and dangerous are not. And they're wasting away their lives one day at a time. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. So my goal for you today is when you walk out those doors in a few minutes, you're going to be determined, I am going to live every day the rest of my life with a joyful spirit regardless of circumstances. Now, I will admit that's not always easy. It's hard to be joyful when the body hurts, people disappoint, loved ones die, the future is uncertain. But I'm going to share with you what I consider to be the four most important things we can do to be joyful as we mature in Christ. Here's the first one. Be confident of your salvation in Christ so that you don't fear death. To be joyful in the present, you have to have hope for the future. Joy and hope go hand in hand. If you're on a cruise in the Caribbean and it's overtaken by terrorists and the terrorists say, we're going to blow this ship up in two days, in the meantime, have fun. You probably won't have much fun. There has to be a harbor in view. So I can understand why people who are unbelievers become more melancholy and crotchety as they get older. Their life is behind them. There is little to hope for. Listen, if all we are is just roadkill and we die and vaporize, that's it, then life is meaningless. There's nothing to hope for. I can understand why an Anthony Bourdain or other celebrities who don't believe get in the twilight years of their life and feel there's nothing to live for. But if you're growing older in Christ and you're confident your sins are forgiven and you have the promise of eternal life, you can be joyful regardless of what's going around you because you know the best is yet to be. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, when he wrote, Therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And the next verse says, Therefore we know that when the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building of God, eternal in the heavens, not made by human hands. And if you believe that, you can be joyful regardless of what's going on because you know the best is yet to be. So I want to say a word to anybody in this room who has not yet accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You may be thinking, I hope I'll go to heaven when I die because I've lived a pretty good life. But the Bible makes it very clear that our righteousness is as filthy rags before a holy God. That no matter how good we are, we cannot earn eternal life. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9, reads like this. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. Not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Evangelist Paul Little used to put it like this. He said, let's imagine you line everybody up along the shore of the Pacific Ocean, and you tell everybody, swim to Hawaii 
How many would make it? Nobody. The doggy paddler might go 20 feet, the Olympic swimmer 20 miles, but nobody can swim to Hawaii. But if a, if a cruise ship came along and a benevolent captain threw out a life ring and said, I'll give a free trip to Hawaii to anybody who will climb on board, who would, who would make it? Those who were humble enough to say, I can't do it on my own, I trust the captain. Understand that's what it is to be a Christian. To admit, I am a sinner. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I can't make it on my own. I trust Jesus Christ. And let me say to you, if you've never done that, do it today because you're running out of time. You claim that promise of Mark 16, 16 that says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved because unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But you know what? I meet a lot of Christian people, people who gave their life to Christ years ago, but they're not very confident of their salvation. They're uncertain. Are you going to go to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so, but boy, I've lived, my, my Christian life hasn't been what it ought to be. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home, and when I was eight years old, I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed Jesus as my Savior. I went forward in church, gave my life to Christ, and I was baptized. I remember feeling so good that day, knowing my sins of the past were forgiven. I had the promise of eternal life. But that was like 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> and I have committed a whole lot more sin since I became a Christian, and frankly, a whole lot worse sin since I became a Christian than I did before. And if I'm not careful, the adversary will plant doubt in my mind and say, how are you really going to go to heaven living the kind of life that you've lived, been so imperfect? It is so important that we always remember what happened to us when we gave our life to Christ. When you became a Christian, God didn't just forgive your sin. He adopted you into his family. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the ransom price, the adoption price, so that you would be a, a, a part of his family. That's what John talks about in 1 John, the third chapter, verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Mother, dad, grandparents, how many times do your kids have to disobey you, disappoint you, betray you, and they're still your kid? They're still in line for your inheritance. I have two sons. I've got one son who's a preacher. I've got one son who's a policeman. We've got love and justice in our home. But when one of my sons was 17 years of age, he broke a family rule big time. I was so upset with him. I called him in the family room, sat him down, confronted him, and he did not deny it. He said, yeah, Dad, I, I have to confess I did it, and I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. But I am not a perfect father, and I was angry, and I began to grind him down. Why would you do that? Just tell me, why would you do that? We've warned you about that. Why would you even be running with kids like that? Why would you even go a place like that? You know what happens when... And to his credit, he didn't bolt out of the room and say, I've had it living in a preacher's house. I can't live up to your expectations. I'm out of here. No, he broke. And he put his head in his hands, and he sobbed. And he said, Dad, I am so sorry. Please, Dad, forgive me. He said, Dad, could we pray or something? Let's wrap this up here. <laughs> <laughs> but when he said, could we pray or something, I broke. And the two of us knelt by the couch, arm in arm, and we both blubbered out a prayer. And then we embraced, and I forgave him, and he forgave me for being too stern a father. Strange thing. 
I've never felt closer to my son than I did at that moment when he needed and received my forgiveness. Jesus said, when you pray, you say, our Father. And God is a perfect, loving Father full of mercy. The Bible says he is near to those of a contrite heart. And when we stumble and fall, when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You have any idea how many times I've almost taken my kid's name out of my will? How many times I've almost cut them out of the inheritance? I'll tell you exactly how many times. Zero. They're my kids. You're God's child. You've been imperfect. But he's still your father. You still stand in line to inherit his riches. I think there's a passage in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, that sums up the debate that churches have sometimes about once saved, always saved. At least it does for me. Here's what it says. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. We are saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ and not ourselves. But if we disown him, we say, I don't put my faith in Christ anymore. I'm becoming an atheist. I'm, I'm a Muslim now. Then he'll let us go. He'll disown us. But if we're faithless and we stumble and fall, he'll be faithful because he cannot disown his own promise to be our father. No matter how heinous the sin you committed since you became a Christian. There's nothing you've done that the blood of Jesus Christ can't wash you white as snow. And there's nothing you will ever do that he hadn't already paid for in full at the cross. That's why one of my favorite songs is, It Is Well With My Soul. There's a stanza that reads, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole. Not just what I did before I was eight, but the whole thing is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So if you're going to be joyful, you need to be confident that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the second thing we can do to be joyful. We can choose to be joyful every day regardless of the circumstances that surround us. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, I set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Doctors Minereth and Meyer had a book years ago with a captivating title, Happiness is a Choice. I believe that. We think of happiness being directly related to what's happening to us at the moment. And to some degree that plays a part. But the more I've observed people, the more I'm convinced that people choose to be happy or they choose to be miserable regardless of circumstances. Ever since I retired from a located pastorate 12 years ago, I do mentoring groups for preachers. I bring in eight different preachers once a month and we talk about ministry for three days called a time of refreshing. They don't know each other, so the first night we go around the table and we tell our story. I looked one night I had a name tag, said Caleb. I said, Caleb, you're first. You tell us your story. He said, my name is Caleb. I've been the pastor of our church, preacher for two years. Before that, I was a youth minister for four years. You could hear a pin drop in the room. This guy was the preacher of a church of 400 people and had a rather severe stuttering problem. About the 
third sentence, he got a twinkle in his eye and said, you, you probably ha haven't even noticed, but I, I, got, I got a little bit of a, of a speech impediment. <laughs> and the guys giggled nervously, kind of like you're doing right now. And I tried to ease the tension by saying, Caleb, are you kind of like Mel Tillis, the singer? He stuttered until he knew what he was going to sing, and when he sang, he didn't stutter. When you preach, you know what you're going to say, you, you don't stutter. No, he said, I, I stutter some when I preach. The con 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 congregation says it, it's kind of endearing to them when I stutter. He said, but... Sometimes I get, hung up, I, get, I, get, I get hung up on a word, and they'll call it out to me from the congregation while I'm preaching. He said, I struggle with, with all, all my life. He said, my mother, my mother said the very first words out of my mouth were, ma, 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 ma. <laughs> I'm telling you, this guy had us in stitches the entire week. He was one of our favorites. One of the best examples I've ever seen of a weakness becoming a strength because he chose to be joyful. I want to challenge you. Every morning before you get out of bed, before your feet hit the floor, you say that verse of scripture to yourself. This is the day the Lord has made and I can choose to be grouchy and miserable and drag everybody down or I can choose to rejoice and be glad and I choose to rejoice and be glad. You can't always choose your circumstances, but you can choose to refrain from griping and complaining all the time. Philippians 2.14 has this phrase, do everything without complaining. Let's all repeat that together. Do everything without complaining. One more time. Do everything without complaining. Now, I don't know most of you, but I guarantee you some of you in here think that complaining is your spiritual gift. But it is not a spiritual gift. I want to tell you the absolute truth. I don't care how bad you feel. Nobody wants to hear it. And when you complain and gripe all the time, you alienate people from yourself and you wind up feeling worse. So, Unless you're talking to your doctor or talking to your mate when they're asleep. Do everything without complaining and griping. You can't always choose your circumstances. You know what? You can choose to laugh out loud several times a day. The Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. And I think when we laugh out loud, enzymes are released in our body that make us healthier, certainly make other people healthier. You can't choose all your circumstances, but you can choose to develop a cheerful countenance. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a happy heart makes the face cheerful. And a cheerful look brings joy to the heart. Folks, as we get older, our skin sags and our muscles droop. And if you're not careful, as you grow older, your natural countenance begins to look like the Grinch that stole Christmas. Now, you can spend thousands of dollars and get yourself a facelift and look like a scarecrow, or you can just work at getting a twinkle in your eye and a curl on your lips and begin to smile. Psalm 31.5 says, those who look to Christ are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. There's a button that reads, if you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, notify your face. <clears throat> now, I tell... I tell these young preachers that I visit with, <clears throat> I said, when you, when you get up to preach, have a joyful spirit in your heart and a countenance on your face because you're communicating good news. You can walk in the pulpit and say, folks, I've just really had a rough week. I've got a bad cold. <clears throat> I have a lot of precious weakness. I want you to pray that the Holy Spirit lifts me up. And they will rally to your cause, but not very often. Most of the time, you better walk into the pulpit and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And somebody will always say, well, that's phony. No, that's not phony. That's obedience. 
Jesus said, when you're fasting, don't let the world know that you're fasting. Wash your face, comb your hair, put on a cheerful countenance, and your heavenly Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Here's a verse that's a challenge. 1 Peter 4.13. It says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice that you're participating in suffering? Why? Going through hard times. Well, one reason is when you suffer, you, better, you have a better appreciation of what Jesus went through for you. You're participating in his sufferings. Somebody hurts your feelings. Think about the people who criticize Jesus all the time, forsake him and fled. You're living under stress. Think about the pressure that Jesus went through and he's attacked all the time by sinful men who hated him. You've got physical pain. You can better appreciate what Jesus went through for you on the cross. I think the most physical pain I ever had in my life, I had a kidney stone. Do I have a witness here? Everybody's hand raised will tell you a kidney stone hurts worse than birth pains. Don't ask me how I know. I just know. I can't hurt any more than that. But I felt like somebody had a knife in my back and it was twisting it. And then it hit me. Jesus had nails in his hands and feet, no morphine for six hours. And having gone through pain helps us better appreciate what Jesus went through. And even when we wince, we can rejoice for what he did for us. The other reason you can rejoice in suffering is that you have an opportunity to witness when you suffer more than any other time. C.S. Lewis once said that pain is God's megaphone. He shouts to us in our pain. But pain is also God's spotlight. When you're going through suffering, other people watch to see how legitimate your faith is. When I was a young man like your preacher, I was playing basketball with a bunch of guys from church and I twisted my ankle really badly. I thought it was broken. I was writhing in pain on the floor. And all the guys gathered around to see if the preacher was okay. And one guy said, go ahead and cuss, preacher. We know you're thinking it. People watch to see how you react when you get cancer. When somebody close to you dies, you lose your job. They're going to see, what's his language like? What? You still go to church, still have joy. When you hurt, you have an opportunity to participate in the sufferings of Christ and even witness for him more in that period of time than you could in a lifetime of ordinary living. Okay, here's a third thing we can do to be joyful. Become increasingly generous with your resources. Remember Jesus saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. We've heard that principle all our lives. But as we get older, it gets harder and harder to put into practice. And as we mature in the Christian life, there's a tendency to give a smaller and smaller percentage away. And here's why. In America, we have this goal of retirement. And we think, I've got to have a nest egg saved up so that when I retire, I will not have to worry about money. I'll not be a burden on anybody. And we're never sure we've got enough. We get in the habit of getting more and more until our net worth determines our self-worth. And even when we've got more than enough, we still hoard it up. But I want you to look at a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke in the 16th chapter. Here's a verse we hardly ever consider. Jesus said, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves 
so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, hoard up worldly wealth so that you've got enough for retirement and you can be secure. And then when you've got a bunch, you can die and then you can will it to the church or your kids or parachurch organization. He says, use worldly wealth while you're living to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, so that when the last check bounces, you're ready to die and go to heaven. So I decided that when I turned 70, my net worth would begin to decline, that I would be more aggressive in giving things away. So I've told my children, look, when I die, you're not going to inherit much money. I like the bumper sticker that reads, no child left a dime. <clears throat> but I said to them, look, what I will do while I'm living, I'm going to share, give you chunks of what I have so I can see you use it and I can rejoice with you. You see what most people do, they wait and die at 85, 90, their kids are 60 years of age, they leave them whatever money they've got, and their kids don't need it at 60, when do they need it? Back when they're 40, 45, when they got kids in college, got all kind of bills. <clears throat> so every Christmas, I write out a very generous check. I don't have to worry about buying any Christmas presents. I put that check in a white envelope, and I put it on the Christmas tree, and it is the grand finale of Christmas. All the gifts are open up, one of my sons will go up and pull off that white envelope, Go to the side with his spouse, open it up, and they'll squeal with delight. And my daughters in law come over and hug me, and my sons will come over and pat me on the back and say, Boy, thanks, Dad. You bailed me out again. How's your health? You got a lot of speaking engagements next year. <laughs> They're not hoping I die so they get their hands on it. They want me to keep on living. <laughs> and I made friends with my own kids. And I tell you what. I'm having a lot more fun at Christmas time. Some of you old misers are hoarding it up. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I just don't have that kind of money yet, or I just don't have enough. I guarantee you that you've got valuables in your house, stored away somewhere, nobody's ever looked at for years. You've got china and silver and jewelry and guns stored everywhere. Not doing anybody any good. Do you ever think about just giving it away? While you're still alive, make friends for yourselves. They need it. My wife and I moved for the first time 28 years, a year ago. I'm packing up my office at home. I find out I've got these sports memorabilia on my shelf I haven't even noticed for years. My son, Phil, the policeman, helped me pack up. I said, Phil, would you want some of these things? He said, well, let me check something, Dad. He got on his phone, looked at the Internet, and said, Dad, did you know this baseball signed by Leo DeRocher is worth $350. Did you know this little helmet signed by Johnny Unitas is worth $750? I said, well, give it back then. <laughs> no. You can take it. That's okay. And uh, I got to see him pick up his countenance. He's a policeman, three kids. He needs it. I guarantee you they're not on his shelf today. Aww. You want to be joyful? Learn to give away. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Well, the last thing I think we need to do to be joyful is to spend an increasing amount of time thinking about what awaits you in heaven. Get your focus off this world and on to the next. In Colossians, the third chapter, verse 2, the Bible says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. <clears throat> Set your minds on the things above 
not on earthly things. The reason we get depressed or even gloomy is we got our focus on this world. And we deep down, we know it can be taken from us in a second. Our health is slipping away. Our country seems to be so divided, deteriorating. Our kids move away. Our money isn't dependable. Stock market's going up and down. Our church changes. Death is sneaking up on us. And life is not joyful because we got our heads down focusing on this temporary world. And as we mature in Christ, we need to think more and more about the promise that awaits us in heaven if we believe what we really say we believe. I'm going to be 75 years old in October, and I've got to tell you, I'm thinking a lot more about heaven than I used to. i got more friends in heaven today than i got on earth. I was in Dallas, Texas a year and a half ago. Felt a familiar pain in my leg. I'd had three blood clots. I called my doctor the next morning and said, I think I've got another blood clot. I thought he'd say, well, when you get back to Louisville, you come see me. But he said, you go to the hospital immediately. Went to Baylor Hospital. They did an ultrasound. Nurse said, Mr. Russell, you've got a serious blood clot from your camp. It's all the way up to your groin. We need to get some blood thinner in you. They took me to the ER room, started shooting blood thinner. And the ER doctor came in after some x-rays and said, Mr. Russell, we found three fragments of that blood clot already lodged in your lung. Sir? When those hit your heart, you're going to be dead in two seconds. Two seconds? That's not much time to repent. You know that? <clears throat> Do you realize how close you may be to eternity? And that when you've been there 10,000 years, you've no less days to sing God's praise than when you first began. Why do you have your focus on this world if you really believe what you say you believe? Set your affections on what is yet to be. And you can be joyful, regardless of circumstances or age. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be shocked at some things. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be awestruck at the awesomeness of God. You know, the Bible says nobody's ever seen God and lived. And that his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are... As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts and his ways higher than our ways. But one day we're going to see him. The one who put the stars in place, the one who designed the DNA molecule, Isaiah says he measures the, the heavens by the span of his hand and the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. And one day we're going to see him. And I guarantee you we're going to fall on our knees and cry holy. Something else is going to surprise us about heaven. I think we're going to be surprised at the multitude and the magnificence of angels. You know, the Bible talks about a whole spirit world out there that we cannot see with the human eye. Just like we can't see electricity or microwaves. We can't see angels. They hardly ever manifest themselves to man. If Revelation 5 says there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels, 100 million angels. And when our spiritual eyes are opened in heaven and we're surrounded by these spirit beings created a little higher than man, I think we're going to be captivated by angels. And when we get to heaven, I think we're going to be shocked at how good we feel. I remember the first day I retired after being the pastor of a mega church for 40 years, I couldn't get over how good I felt not having any pressure on me. 
I remember a day, it was 98 degrees in Louisville, high humidity, hardly breathe. We flew to Denver, Colorado, got an SUV, went up Mount Evans about 7,000 feet. I got out of the vehicle and it was cool, crisp air, low humidity, sun was glistening. I took my first breath and I thought, wow, why am I not living out here? We're so used to pressure and pollution and pain, we think it's normal. But the Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And I think when we take that first breath in heaven, we're going to be stunned at how wonderful we feel. So get your focus off the problems of this world that's going to pass away anyway. And on to that which is eternal. And know that the best is yet to be. We had a wonderful woman in our church by the name of Lee Tate. Here's a picture of Lee, 86. And this was her countenance all the time. I mean, this was a very attractive 86-year-old woman. In fact, the secular world would often hire her for advertising when they wanted to sell something to senior adults. This is what you want to look like. But she was very active in our church. And... Uh, an encouragement to me. But life was not always easy for about 10 years before this picture. Her beloved husband, Dr. Robert Tate, died. And I think we have a picture of him. Uh, she loved Dr. Tate. She was she doted over him all the time. And he died. And she missed him so much. And then she got cancer and she battled cancer. But she still had this joyful expression and sang in a choir and greeted people in the, on the prayer team. When Lee Tate died, her daughters gave me a letter that she had written to me to be given when we had her funeral. I'm going to read one paragraph and then we'll close. Dear Bob, when you receive this note of thanks, I will have arrived safely home to the Lord Jesus Christ and the sweet prince he gave to me as my traveling companion through this earthly journey. But when you arrive, don't look for us at the gate because we'll have gone on downtown where the action is. <clears throat> Bob may be playing drums in the marching band. Meanwhile, comfort my darling, precious girls, Sarah and Robin, until we meet again in Christ Jesus. Lee. That's what I'm talking about. Joy because you're confident that the best is yet to be, regardless of circumstances. A choice to be joyful every day, even though life isn't perfect. And a spirit of generosity to take time to write a letter to somebody be given when you die. And a focus not on this earth, but a focus on where the action is. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we get grumpy and depressed. We're not looking up, we're looking down. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and to set our affections on the things that are above. Help us to begin today to be joyful, so joyful that others will see Jesus Christ, even in our countenance, we pray in his strong name. Amen.